Hello, my name is James Whitaker, and I'd like to ask you to remove all the ferrous objects from about your person before I welcome you to another episode of Conditional One, my occasional podcast focusing on all aspects of MRI safety. This episode, I'm going to be taking things back to basics and looking at one of the fundamentals, not just of MRI safety, but MRI in general. I'm talking about the M in MRI, magnetism. More specifically, the static magnetic field. Let's start at the very beginning. What is magnetism? The Oxford English Dictionary describes it as a physical phenomenon produced by the motion of electric charge, which results in attractive and repulsive forces between objects. Not only that, but the Oxford English Dictionary defines a magnet as a piece of iron or other material which has its component atoms so ordered that the material exhibits properties of magnetism, such as attracting other iron-containing objects or aligning itself in an external magnetic field. So, that's magnets and magnetism, but what's a magnetic field? Basically, it's how we describe the magnetic force in the area in and around a magnet. For any magnet, the magnetic field is the area around it where it can apply a force on another magnet. Magnetic fields are invisible, so when we draw them, we use field or flux lines to demonstrate and visualise the magnetic force. Magnetic force is what is known as a vector quantity, meaning it has a direction as well as a magnitude. Magnets always have two poles, north and south, with the flux lines going from one to the other, north to south. When looking at a field line map of a magnetic field, it's important to note a couple of things that will help us to understand the forces at play. First of all, flux lines always form closed loops. There are no flux lines that start at the North Pole and then stop somewhere in space. They always loop from one pole to the other and continue within the material of the magnet itself. Second, flux lines never cross, but they do get closer together in areas where the magnetic field is strongest. So, increased density of the flux lines is a visual indication of the strength of the magnetic field. All good? Right, let's move on to how this relates to MRI. Every day we talk about the static magnetic field, but what does that mean? Well, it's the part we talk about when someone new comes in and we tell them the magnet is always on. That said, as with everything in MRI, it isn't as simple as it at first appears. There are three types of MRI scanner currently in widespread use, each with different applications and uses, and only one of them can truly be described as always on. These are known as permanent magnets and as C or horseshoe shaped chunks of magnetized metal, where the magnetic field is predominantly found in the gap between the two poles. The second type of magnet is a resistive electromagnet. These have coils with current running through them to generate the magnetic field and get their name from the resistance to the current running through these coils. I've not worked with a system like this in my career, but while I believe they can be powered down, this is usually only done out of hours to reduce power costs. And so for all intents and purposes, it can be considered on if patients are being scanned. If anyone listening has experience with resistive MRI scanners, I'd love to hear from you. Email me at podcast at conditional1.com. The third, 
and by far most common type of MRI scanner is the cylindrical superconducting magnet that I would imagine almost all of us are familiar with. On MRIQuestions.com, Dr. Elster says that these make up 90% of the MRI systems in the world, and I have absolutely no reason to disbelieve him. Similar to resistive electromagnets, their magnetic fields are generated by electric current running through coils of wire. But these superconducting magnets are cooled to extremely low temperatures with liquid helium to eliminate resistance. I'm going to talk about cryogens in more detail another time, but for now, we can safely say that in any circumstance when a patient will be in the scanner, the magnetic field will be present. Okay, so one of the most common questions I get asked by visitors to the MRI unit is, how strong is the MRI scanner? Now, obviously, this is a lot easier to answer when you have a scanner nearby that you can gesticulate at, because otherwise it's definitely a how long is a piece of string type of question. Resistive magnets usually top out at about 0.6 tesla. Permanent magnets can make it up to 1 tesla, but for higher field strengths, a superconducting magnet is required. At the moment, 8 tesla is the strongest field that can be used for the scanning of patients, but scanners as strong as 11.7 tesla have been developed for research scanning of human subjects. That's great and all, but what does that mean? How strong actually is that? Well, that's easy. One tesla is defined as the field intensity generating one newton of force per ampere of current per meter of conductor. Well, that's great. That doesn't mean that much to me, and I doubt it does to many of you listening. How about I put it another way? One tesla is 10,000 gauss. Nice. Now I have a number that I don't understand that's been cut into 10,000 smaller pieces. But bear with me because hopefully things are about to make a bit more sense. In radiography, when I talk to patients about the relative impact of an x-ray on their health, I used to compare their examination to background radiation. For instance, a chest x-ray is equivalent to about 10 days exposure to background radiation. Magnetism is very similar. Just as there is a value to background radiation, there is a value to Earth's magnetic field. It varies with location, but at the equator it's approximately 0.3 gauss, and at the poles it's approximately 0.6 gauss. Great, now it's starting to make a bit more sense. That means that a 1 tesla MRI scanner is somewhere in the region of 25,000 times stronger than Earth's magnetic field. That's a big number, but it's still really hard to put that into context, so I then usually compare it to things that people have experience with. Fridge magnets. How strong is a fridge magnet? According to the National High Magnetic Field Laboratory of Florida State University, an average fridge magnet is about 10 gauss, or 0.01 tesla, so a 1 tesla MRI scanner is comparable to a thousand fridge magnets. Still a big difference, but it's more manageable. Alternatively, as a fan of popular culture, I have another go-to. Hollywood movies. Picture the scene. You're watching a movie, and the bad guy, usually English for some reason, but possibly playing a German or an Italian, wants to dispose of someone, a rival, a witness, or someone who crossed him in some way. 
He and his henchmen take the victim to the scrapyard they always seem to have available, shoot them, and then bundle them into the boot of an old car. A huge magnet then lifts that car into the air and dumps it into a compactor, never to be seen again, unless the plot demands it. That magnet, strong enough to pick up a car, is a great example of a resistive electromagnet and is somewhere in the region of one Tesla in strength. How's that for context? Most MRI scanners in use today are stronger than something that can pick up a car. So, that's the static magnetic field, often described as B0. One thing that I don't think many MRI techs realise is that when we talk about the field strength of a scanner, be it 1.5 Tesla, 3 Tesla, or whatever, this is the useful field strength that we can use for imaging. For a long time I thought that the maximum stationary field strength was at ISO centre, but this isn't the case. While the exact position varies from scanner to scanner, there is an area within the inner surface of the bore, close to the bore entrance, where B0 is higher than at ISO centre. Significantly higher, sometimes up to 30% in fact. Now, obviously this only applies to superconducting closed bore magnets, and I'm not familiar enough with the other types to comment. So if you do have some insight into that, I'd love to hear about it. The useful imaging strength of an MRI scanner is actually only found in a relatively small volume within the scanner itself. And as you move away from the scanner, the static magnetic field you experience decreases. This is known as the spatial gradient which is often abbreviated to dB over dx, or change in magnetic field over change in distance. This is measured in Tesla per meter, or Gauss per centimeter. Remember, I told you that one Tesla equals 10,000 Gauss. Okay, so one Tesla per meter equals 100 Gauss per centimeter. Why does that matter, I hear you ask? Well, Many MRI conditional devices and implants have a maximum spatial gradient that they can be exposed to, and I'll get into the reasons why that is next episode. When you buy a new scanner, the manufacturer should provide your workplace with things called spatial gradient maps. These are hugely useful diagrams that not only allow you to determine the points at which B0 and dB over dx are at their maximum values, but also allow you to visualise over what distances these values change. Because the magnetic fields commonly used in MRI are so large, MRI scanners are commonly shielded to reduce the distance over which potentially dangerous field strengths extend. This external field, known as the fringe field, can be reduced in one of two ways. Historically, passive shielding was built into the room with iron or other ferromagnetic materials being incorporated into the walls, ceiling and sometimes the floor. These had the effect of compressing the magnetic field or flux lines within the room itself. I seem to remember when I was first training to be a radiographer in the mid-1990s that our MRI scanner was passively shielded. It made scanner installations hugely heavy and very, very expensive. The alternative is known as active shielding. Basically, this means that additional superconducting coils are built into the scanner itself rather than into the room. These coils sit outside the coils producing the static magnetic field and are wired so that the current runs in the opposite direction. This produces a magnetic field that opposes the main field, concentrating flux lines closely around the scanner itself. 
This allows MRI rooms to be smaller, but has a significant effect on the spatial gradient. The spatial gradient can range from only one gauss per centimetre by the scan room door to over a thousand gauss per centimetre just inside the bore, where the spatial gradient is at its steepest. But hold on, a thousand gauss per centimetre is 10 tesla per metre. The scanner's only 1.5 or 3 tesla, so how can the spatial gradient be that high? This isn't field strength we're talking about, but the rate of change over distance. If the field strength changes from 1.5 to 2 tesla over 10 centimetres, which is definitely possible, that's a spatial gradient of 10 tesla per metre. Frightening, isn't it? Okay, before we move on to discussing the forces that can act on materials, I need to quickly discuss the different types of materials that can interact with a magnetic field in different ways. And to do that, I need to talk about atoms and electrons for a few minutes. Atoms, as we know, have electrons circling a central nucleus. In MRI, we're usually preoccupied with protons processing or spinning in alignment with the static magnetic field. This is the fundamental basis of MRI, as we use the hydrogen, well, usually the hydrogen, in the tissues of our bodies to generate a signal. However, electrons are moving electrical charges as well, and have tiny magnetic moments associated with them. When a substance is exposed to a magnetic field, that substance becomes polarised. Basically, that means that the substance develops its own magnetic field that either aligns with the external field or opposes it. Dependent on how they react, these atoms and molecules are described as either diamagnetic, paramagnetic or ferromagnetic. Most atoms have pairs of electrons circling the nucleus, and because they circle in opposite directions, they cancel each other out. Substances containing these atoms are described as being diamagnetic and have a weak, negative susceptibility to magnetic fields. This means they're slightly repelled by the external field, but this effect ceases if the external field is removed. Most of the elements of the periodic table, as well as the vast majority of biological tissues, are diamagnetic. If the magnetic field applied is strong enough, and the material exposed is light enough, the repulsion of the diamagnetic material can even counteract gravity. I suggest you all Google levitating frog for a particularly memorable example. Paramagnetic substances have a small positive susceptibility to external magnetic fields. This means they're attracted to the external field due to the presence of unpaired electrons, giving atoms within the substance a net magnetic moment. Similar to diamagnetic materials, once the external magnetic field is removed, the substance loses its magnetic properties. Notable examples of paramagnetic elements are gadolinium and manganese. As most of you already know, things get interesting when we get to ferromagnetic materials. They have a large positive susceptibility to magnetic fields, meaning they are strongly attracted to any external magnetic field. Not only that, but ferromagnetic substances also retain this property once the external field is removed and can become permanently magnetised. This is because ferromagnetic materials contain things called magnetic domains. Before being exposed to an external magnetic field, 
the magnetic domains are organised in random directions, cancelling each other out to give the material as a whole a net magnetic moment of zero. When the external field is applied, the domains align with it to produce a strong magnetic field within the material. Iron, nickel and cobalt are the ferromagnetic materials we are most likely to come into contact with. It's vitally important to understand how ferromagnetic properties work to practice safely in MRI. Just because an implant, or clip, or whatever it might be, was safe last time doesn't mean that it'll be safe this time. Prior exposure to the magnetic field and subsequent magnetization means that the same item may react differently when reintroduced to the static magnetic field. Okay, so that's the physics part mostly over and done with. Now we're going to talk about the forces that are actually applied on objects that are introduced to the static magnetic field and spatial gradient. Let's start with translation. I would imagine that pretty much everyone working in MRI has experienced this in some form or another. Basically, when a ferromagnetic object enters the fringe field, it will experience an attractive force that will pull it towards the scanner, potentially turning it into a projectile. One of my earliest learning moments in MRI, long before we started changing patients into gowns for their scans, was a gentleman lying down for his head scan and a large number of coins flying out of his pocket and attaching themselves to the inner surface of the bore. And this was despite me confirming with him previously that his pockets were definitely empty and all of his belongings were in a locker. So, is translation caused by the static field or the spatial gradient? Actually, the answer's both. Translational force is proportional to the product of static field multiplied by spatial gradient. So, the stronger the magnet and the greater the rate of change in the spatial gradient, the greater the translational force. I think of it a bit like rolling down a hill. If it's a mountain with a steep slope, you'll go a lot faster than you would rolling down a gently sloped grassy hillock. However, as with rolling down a hill, there is a limit to this relationship. Imagine that you're falling straight down, as if you've just jumped out of a perfectly good aeroplane. There's a thing called terminal velocity where you can't fall any faster, no matter how far you're falling, because of drag and air pressure. Translation has something sort of similar. It's called magnetic saturation. Earlier, I talked about ferromagnetic materials having things called magnetic domains that align with an external field. When all of the domains in the material are aligned with the field, it's become saturated, and the strength of the external field has no further effect, no matter how much more powerful it becomes. For most ferromagnetic materials, the saturation point is below 1.5 tesla, so most materials will be saturated when they reach close proximity to the bore entrance. Why the bore entrance? Why not the face of the scanner or isocenter? Well, translational force is proportional to field strength multiplied by spatial gradient. And as I mentioned earlier, the points at which both of these reach their maximal values are just inside the bore entrance on the inner surface. In fact, at isocenter, the spatial gradient is zero because the field strength there is uniform. By design, the static field is as homogeneous as it can be engineered to be. 
This means that translational force will be zero because it's proportional to field strength multiplied by spatial gradient. Any number multiplied by zero is zero. I described the best-known translation incident in episode one of this podcast, the Columbini incident, where six-year-old Michael Columbini was struck by a ferrous oxygen cylinder and killed. But translation events are still an issue to this day. Despite being a never event, an error that should never occur, projectile events made up 9% of events reported to the FDA, according to the 10-year review released in 2019. When I have a new student starting their training with me, one of the first things I do is play with scissors. I take a pair of scissors and attach it to a lanyard, making sure that I'm holding the clip firmly so that the lanyard can't come undone. Then, apprehensive student in tow, I slowly walk into the scanning room. The scissors will hang down as gravity is the strongest force acting upon them. As I move closer into the fringe field, the scissors will start to twitch as the field begins to exert a force upon them, before finally pulling the lanyard taut as the translational force outweighs the force of gravity and the scissors point towards the bore. Why do I do this? Because magnetism cannot be seen, or smelt, or tasted, I believe it's hugely important to demonstrate the forces involved in a way that can be easily seen and understood. That way, a new trainee can gain an appreciation of, and healthy respect for, the magnetic field within our environment. (laughs) I suppose, at this point, I should say, don't try this at home, but I'd be very surprised if any of us have MRI scanners at home, so I'll say instead, don't try this at work. Well, I guess that's as good a place as any to call it a day for this episode, Next time, I'll continue talking about the static magnetic field and the forces we need to be aware of. I'd like to say thank you to purpleplanet.com for the use of their music and thank Janelle Whitaker for graphic design. If you have any questions about the content of this podcast or ideas for future episodes of Conditional One, please email me. My email address is podcast at conditionalone.com. And remember, If anyone ever tells you that being an MRI technologist isn't rocket science, tell them no, but it is nuclear physics. Goodbye.